The Bulls have three seconds to try a shot and try to win the game. This is the Notebook Wagering Podcast. Five seconds left in the game. Do you believe in miracles? Yes! Coming to you from the betting deck. Don't believe what I just saw. Here are your hosts. Hey, Q here, Notebook Wagering. I'm back in the host chair. Feels good to be back. Did a little Vegas trip with the boys, minus J-Cam. I got J-Cam sitting with me, Smitty and Nails. What's going on, fellas? Not a Q. Just uh, finally recuperated from Vegas. Can't wait to break down the final four with our special guest tonight. And then, sadly, I'll probably jump off maybe a little early as well and get back to work. Yes, uh, I'm enjoying the lively pre-show talk about baseball futures and uh, extremely optimistic fellow uh, podcasters here. So good evening so far. What's up, guys? Good to be back. I'm excited for the final four and let's get after it. We have one of our favorites on the show. So let's let's get it. Let's dive into it. All right, so we uh, we kind of slapped on the shows just because we were traveling. The scheduling just didn't work out, but we covered uh, the first two rounds of the tournament, or first round of the tournament, and uh, so we're going to kind of give a quick recap of the tournament with our guest and then get his final four predictions, potentially championship predictions. We've got VEASAN's own Greg Peterson. He's been on the show a couple times. What's going on, Greg? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me, gentlemen. Absolutely. All right, Greg, give me your uh, give me your two minute from round one to where we're at, you know, dissertation of the tournament or your thoughts, and then we'll kind of fire into uh, a little more detail with, with the final four. Well, we wound up having a lot of peacocking early on with St. Peter's being able to make the Elite Eight, which I'm sure every bracket in America wound up having that one. I say that very, very jokingly, but it's been all about blue bloods here in the NCAA tournament because obviously we're going to be getting North Carolina versus Duke. That's going to be going on, and we're going to be getting Kansas. They're going to be playing against Villanova. What I think is very intriguing is that if you take a look at past NCAA tournaments, typically the team that winds up winning the NCAA tournament in the top 30 in terms of adjusted defense, and we've got a chance for that metric to wind up not being the case, especially if North Carolina winds up being able to win it. Duke has been slacking a little bit on defense. Kansas may be able to come along for the ride, and going to be very intriguing to see what we wind up getting out of Villanova as well because injuries have been a little bit of a part of the NCAA tournament and now we're going to be having that in the final four as well. Excellent. Nails, J.K.M., any question? No, I'm going to let you guys fire away first. So I'm writing a, a goodie down. All right, Greg, I'll, I'll start. Uh, so kind of up until this point, who was your most, I guess, Outside of St. Peter's, obviously we know the run they made, but who was your most impressive team and your most disappointed as we head into the final four from, you know, from everybody either to this point or prior? I think the most disappointing team was Purdue. You just take a look at the way that they were coaching that Sweet 16 game and 
I mean, I had Purdue going out in the round of 32, so it's not necessarily a case of which they wound up going out earlier than I thought, but that was one of the most poorly coached games I've ever seen from Matt Painter in that contest against St. Peter's. You're recruit big, and I mean, you can debate their recruiting and how you wind up going about that or not, but if you wind up recruiting big like Matt Painter does, fine, so be it. If you're going up against St. Peter's, you've got to throw out there Zach Eady, who wound up getting fewer than 20 minutes in the game, despite the fact that he had as many fouls as myself. I had no idea what in the world he was doing, and quite frankly, we saw a lot of really bad coaching from Midwest teams. The Big Ten wound up having fewer teams in the Elite Eight than the Metro Atlantic. So it's just a case in which I was befuddled by some of these coaches and some of the jobs that they wound up doing. I mean, even John Calipari, I'm willing to give him a little bit of slack. I mean, St. Peter's just wound up getting hot in that game against Kentucky. But the one game that I really point to and I say that was just coaching malpractice, that's what Purdue wound up doing. That was really bad. And then the biggest surprise outside of that, I think you have to go with the team in the final four, North Carolina. Hubert Davis has taken a team and completely changed the philosophy of North Carolina. North Carolina used to be a team that they didn't shoot the three well, but they would do a good job getting those second chance, third chance opportunities. Now in North Carolina, they do embrace a lot more outside shooting. Caleb Love, RJ Davis, they really run things through those two guys. Obviously got Armando Baycott down low, but this is a North Carolina team that five weeks ago, they lost on their home floor as a two touchdown favorite to the Pitt Panthers who lost earlier this year on their home floor by double figures to the Citadel. And all of a sudden Hubert Davis has been able to come in. He's been able to get this North Carolina team playing their best at the most important time. So they have been highly impressive. Kudos to Mr. Hubert Davis and a dunce cap to our good friend, Matt Painter. Hey, Greg, real quick, uh, in that game, you know, I said to the boys, I was texting them, and even a couple other people talked to me. Why why does Purdue not go with the two bigs at the same time, just for even a little bit in the game? What's your what's your thought process on why Painter is not? I mean, I know they sub in for each other, and they try to split, but the size difference just to me looked like it would have been just dominant. Why don't they try to do a couple minutes with that, you think? I think it might be just due to like speed and versatility, but quite frankly, I don't have a good answer for you because I would have like, it's just one of those cases in which I think all of us have the same thought in our mind. What in the world is Matt Painter doing? And I think the only one person that has the answer to that is Matt Painter and or anyone that was on the Purdue coaching staff, because that made no sense to me at all. I mean, even if you wind up crashing and burning for like three or four minutes with it, at the very least, give it a shot against the St. Peter's team that their tallest guy was Casey Udefu right around six foot seven-ish. So you had to, at the very least, give it an opportunity. And we saw the difference between that badly coached team and a well-coached team in Hubert Davis's squad in which he just let Armando Baycott completely take over down low. Baycott has 20 rebounds in the game, completely dominates it. So that was really the difference between those two teams. And North Carolina currently being in the final four in Purdue for the second straight year, going out to a double-digit seed. Yeah, Greg, speaking so good in North Carolina, um, you know, we look at the final four focus. Are, are they deep enough in this game? I mean, is it a team that can survive foul trouble? I think that's really the issue here. When you have all the stoppages in the final fours with the TV timeouts and everything like that, should, they should be able to go timeout to timeout to be able to play. But I guess, is that the biggest question? Because their depth of scoring, at least in their starting lineup, I think is the biggest advantage they've had in this tournament. And it really was what gave St. Peter's problems because they couldn't cheat off anyone. Um, everyone could contribute. 
So is will that be an issue in this game, especially playing Duke when they're going against guys who are just better maybe than them, even on, from a recruiting standpoint? There's one guy that can't get into foul trouble, and that's Armando Baycott. If you recall the first game that wound up taking place in Chapel Hill, Baycott did wind up picking up two fouls within the first seven minutes of that game, and that completely doomed them. So there's one guy that can't afford that. And, I mean, if you wind up having someone like Caleb Love, R.J. Davis in foul trouble, that's not ideal, but they will be able to overcome that. The whole key to North Carolina is Baycott because the difference between he and Puff Johnson is absolutely massive. And you're going to be going up against a guy, Mark Williams, who's going to be the best pure rim protector in this game because he gives Duke three blocks per game. And I feel like he's been one of the more underrated big men in all of college basketball this year was a little bit inconsistent towards the beginning of the year, but has been very good down the stretch. But that one guy that you can't afford to get into foul trouble is Baycott because if he winds up doing that, it's game set and match for North Carolina. Greg, you touched on coaching and we all know coaching is going to take a huge part here in the final four. Give us your hoops Peterson coach rating here and who you want to basically lead a team with a minute to go down by one kind of scenario into a game here. Well, if I could bring back John Beeline, he would be my guy because I mean, John Beeline, every single time there would be an out of bounds play for Michigan, there would always be wide open guys. Unfortunately, he wound up going to the NBA and now he's been bouncing around a little bit the last few years. I'm surprised that he doesn't wind up coming back to the coaching rankings. If I were someone like Texas last offseason, I recognize that Chris Beard was out there, but I would have just offered that guy a fortune and told him, you know what? We want you on the sidelines. We're going to give you every resource humanly possible. That would have been my guy. Dane Altman is always someone that I've trusted in for Oregon. Obviously, he's not going to be in the NCAA tournament. When it comes to these four coaches, I would honestly ride with Jay Wright. Jay Wright has been able to do an absolutely magnificent job with this team. And if there's one coach that I think can overcome a loss, like we're going to see with Justin Moore, it is Jay Wright. Because you take a look at what they wound up doing last year in that NCAA tournament when they wound up having to play against Baylor, when they had to play against Winthrop, and also they had one other game out there in the round of 32 that I'm sort of blanking on, but they allowed 61, 62, and 63 points. Other game was North Texas, by the way, but they did a great job slowing things down to a crawl because that NCAA tournament last year, they were without Colin Gillespie. So not necessarily the same scenario, but something that is relatively similar, something that you're able to take a comparison to. And what Jay Wright did is, he ran a offense that would be deemed the slowest in all of college basketball. If he would have played it for a full season, either last year or this year, I fully expect him to do the same thing with a week to be able to prepare. There's nobody I would want on the sidelines more than Jay Wright. Now, I do think that he's just a little bit outgunned in this matchup against Kansas, but of these four coaches in the final four, I do think that Jay Wright is the best one. And it shows in that he's been able to win two titles since the beginning of the 2015-16 season. Speaking of Jay Wright, so obviously, and you could argue this either way, but overall, I would say Mike Krzyzewski is probably the number one coach in college basketball, um, you know, in his tenure. If Villanova, obviously, Moore's injured, they get Gillespie back to this tournament. Um, but if they're able to pull an upset, upset and at least make it to the uh, the championship game, if not win it, does he kind of slide over maybe guys like Calipari and Bill Self as to being, you know, the new number one coach in college basketball when Krzyzewski leaves? I think that he's already ahead of John Calipari in terms of Texas and O's. Now, John Calipari, the master recruiter. I don't think that Jay Wright is ever going to be on that level. And that's just because that's not really the style of Jay Wright. And 
it's sort of a different sort of feel for different sort of coaches because John Calipari is always bringing in these one and done guys. He's wanting to be able to get guys into the NBA, have these teams be able to peak in February and March. We've seen a little bit of a different approach this last year with Kentucky bringing in Oscar Sheboy, which I do give John Calipari a lot of credit for noticing that, bringing guys into the transfer portal. Even though they crashed and burned against St. Peter's, I still thought that he did a relatively solid job with this team. But I already put Jay Wright out of John Calipari just from his X's and O's, the way that he winds up being able to manufacture that. And when it comes to Coach K, up until this year, I do feel like he had lost a little bit with regards to his in-game coaching. I honestly feel like Coach K has been able to do some of his best work this year because I take a look at the way that he wound up going into that zone defense when they were playing against Texas Tech. That's something I'm not sure he would have done two to three years ago. We talk about players being able to find a different gear. I feel like Coach K has found a little bit of a different gear as well because I felt like some of his in-game management, it had gotten a little bit lazy in recent years. And this year, you could tell that in his final year, there just seems to be a little bit more there. It seems like he's really dove in a little bit more knowing that, all right, this is it. I have to give it my all this year. And he has really been able to do so. So I give all the credit in the world to Coach K with that regard. But I would still put Jay Wright out of a lot of those names that you want to mention a little bit earlier, including John Carroll Perry, even Bill Self to a little bit of a less extent because with Bill Self, he does wind up getting a lot of those talented guys that Bill Self, no question, does a very solid job. But I feel like just in terms of the sheer coaching, the sheer development, Jay Wright is really second to darn near none in all of college basketball. Well said. Very well said. So, Greg, uh, one thing, you know, I think you've talked even on Twitter about this, but like Reggie Miller, the one night said the transfer portal has saved college basketball. Now I kind of disagree. I just want to get your opinion. Like, for example, one of the, you know, one of the better players for Texas tech, he leaves like the day after, like, he's like, I'm out. You know, you look at these kids and you go, wow, you know, what a great program went far in the tournament. You have a great coach. Why are you leaving? And you're playing. Is this saving college basketball like Reggie Miller said on the air the one night, or is this really hurting college basketball? I don't think that it's neither saving nor hurting. I think that it's just a different form of college basketball, and it just sort of is the landscape of it because you'll recall a few years ago, it was a whole bunch of one-and-done guys. It was a bunch of guys that they would just stay in college for one year, and then they would leave, and a lot of these programs weren't even successful. I mean, take a look at a guy like a Ben Simmons at LSU – LSU didn't wind up making the NCAA tournament the one year that he was there. So we've seen a lot of that winding up going down. And I think that it is a little bit better for the game in which you do have these fifth year guys. Someone like a Kellen Grady going from Davidson to Kentucky has helped out as well. And I do feel like there are some advantages to it as well, because you'll notice that a lot of the guys that are at these programs that have been able to take off as mid majors, they were guys that they wanted beginning at power programs, maybe they wanted coming in off the bench for like 10 minutes. They weren't getting a lot of playing time. They were disgruntled. Instead of riding the bench at, say, Illinois, you wind up going down to the SoCon. You wind up going down to the Ohio Valley, and you're able to tear it up that way. So I do think that there are many good things for the portal. And I think that there are more good things than bad things. But to your point, you also have guys that jump ship, even though they're in a relatively solid place as well. They think that the grass is going to be a little bit greener on the other side. They're trying to be able to make millions and millions of dollars in the NBA. And that's just side of the cards for everyone. There's only 68 guys that wind up getting drafted in the NBA draft. And 
there are a few international guys that wind up getting picked as well. So there's fewer than 60 slots. Now you've obviously got things like free agency. And the one thing that I will say as well is that there was the one-time transfer rule that was passed, which I am for that. I think that especially if you wind up having a coach leave, you should be able to go wherever you want. Because I mean, if a coach winds up jumping ship, why should you be forced to stick a square peg into a round hole? Most of these guys, they wind up going to a school because they're going to be utilized in a certain way by a coach that I always think is perfectly acceptable. Coach jump ship, everyone with regards to the student athletes, they should be able to do the same thing. The one thing that I think is an issue is that you've got these guys like Jalen Coleman lands, for instance, that he's with like his fourth program in five years and he's been around college basketball since seemingly Moses was having two of every animal on his ship or that's actually no that had two of every animal Moses was the one that parted the Red Sea but I think that he's about as old as both of those guys at this point (laughs) sitting there on his college campuses and it's just like okay do we really need these guys in four different schools in five years it's clearly a guy that he's just trying to find a way to be able to get some minutes and it's not necessarily working out at some point it's sort of like all right enough is enough you should need to sit out a little bit more if you wind up just jumping from school to school I think that transferring once if you don't like what you wind up seeing that's fine but if you want to transfer a second time a third time a fourth time then there should be a little bit more consequence to it Greg, I have one last kind of non-Final Four question. Um, so, the, obviously, this tournament, Gonzaga loses to Arkansas. And this might be an extreme take. Is it kind of the time to where we just stop giving them a one seed uh, and kind of maybe take them as, like, you know, Wichita State was, like, 30-0 or 30-1 and a couple years ago, and they obviously didn't have the number one seed. Like, are we at the point where we just kind of realize, like, hey – They've, they've had three solid teams in the last three to five years. They haven't been able to get it done. Is it kind of time to just stop giving them the benefit of the doubt? Let's just start giving them a lower seed. Because let's be honest, if they play in a Pac-12 or a Big 12 or a Power 6 conference, they're not going one, two, and three losses. To me, they're going to be six, seven, eight losses each time just you know, from playing these teams grinding in February and, and January. What's your thoughts on that? Now, the one thing I will say is that Wichita State actually did wind up receiving a one seed that year. You may recall that was in 2014 when Kentucky as an eight seed wound up making the national title game. So those that wound up being in charge of the NCAA, they did Wichita State no favors very much intentionally when they wound up giving them that one seed. But I think that it's a case in which if Gonzaga continues to book these very difficult non-conference games, like they played against Texas, they played against Alabama, they played against UCLA. They played against Duke. They played against Texas Tech. If they keep on booking those very difficult games and they keep on winning those games, I think that you've got to give them a one seed just because it's a case of which if you take a look at what Gonzaga did in the non-conference versus everyone else, it is the best in all of college basketball. And you can only base these teams based on who they want to play against. We can't wind up simulating forward and being like, all right, if Gonzaga was out there in the Big Ten, for instance, how would they wind up doing? Because, I mean, we saw a lot of teams have success out there in the Big Ten. They didn't do any better than Gonzaga either. So you're able to use that little bit of a comparison. But I do think that the big thing for Gonzaga is that they've got to take care of business when it comes to the non-conference. This year might have been a little bit of a better year to maybe knock Gonzaga a little bit more because they did wind up taking that loss to Alabama in the state of Washington. Meanwhile, if you take a look at, like, for instance, the 2020-21 season, Gonzaga makes the national championship. They were undefeated. If you take a look at their wins, they wind up knocking off, like, 
Virginia. They wind up knocking off Iowa. They wind up knocking off Kansas. There's really nothing more that they can do. They wind up running rough shot. They did not wind up losing a single game. I think that we should be knocking Gonzaga a little bit more for some of those losses, especially in hindsight that Alabama lost. I think we could all realize, yeah, that wasn't necessarily the world's greatest loss. So I do think that knocking Gonzaga a little bit more for their losses is fair. But if they wind up going through the non-conference, they wind up playing against like five top 25 teams and they wind up winning all of those games. I don't think that there's a way they can leave Gonzaga off of that one line. Greg, uh, let's talk some turkey here, though, on final four numbers. So last time this final four was in New Orleans, it was 2012. The scores were pretty low. We had a 69-61, 64-62, and the title game was 67-59, I believe. So with this huge dome, 70,000 fans, our starting over-unders are 133 for the Kansas game and 151 in the Duke-Carolina game. Do you have any leans or – any shout outs you actually want to give on these over-unders potentially? I'm on the under in both of those because you just mentioned it. When you wind up going to a football stadium in general, and it's not just the New Orleans Superdome, it's Ford Field, it's Lucas Oil Stadium. The list goes on and on and on of these football stadiums in which guys just can't shoot at. And on top of that, you wind up having these funky backdrops. You have these cavernous arenas. You've got more fans there than ever before. <laughs> These are 18 to 23 year old kids in the biggest stage of their life. And the first thing that is going to be going is the jump shooting, which is why when it comes to these sorts of games, the teams that you want to look at a little bit more, it seems that they do a good job on the glass and they do a good job with defense because while the jump shooting is going to come and go with those backdrops, with all the nerves, it's much less likely that you're going to have a fumbled rebound, that you're going to have a guy just trip over his own two feet when it comes to defense. Now, that could wind up happening a little bit as well, but you're much less prone to that. So I do lean to the under both of these games with Villanova, Kansas. I set my total at 130 and a half, fully expecting that Villanova, with having a five-man rotation, they're going to be slowing things back down. And with North Carolina versus Duke, this is more of a total that I was setting between a 147 to a 148. I mean, especially now that we're north of 150, I see a lot of value to the under, even though both of the games in the regular season, they want it going over. But with that said, those were both played in games that are ex- in, in arenas that are built for basketball. Now you've got a converted football stadium, which I do think that that's a big deal in this spot. Yeah, it, you, you mentioned the unders there, obviously. Like, does it seem like everyone's playing slow these days? Like you have a great soundbite on Beeson where you talk about Vermont's efficiency and the fact that they actually don't even play fast on uh, on offense. And I'm looking at the tempos here. Kansas and North Carolina do play fast. Villanova is in the top 10% for slow. I think they're 345th in tempo. And Duke's kind of in the middle. But it just seemed like through the tournament, you have good offenses and good defenses, but you just see that the pace of the play is just really, really slow. Even a team like Houston, who's really athletic, plays at a slow pace. Is, is that just teams preparing themselves for March because they know that the tournament – that if you have a slow team, it's really easy to slow a game down and speed it up. And you just don't see teams extend defenses anymore in an attempt to, to, to quicken the tempo. So should we always look unders in these tournaments going forward just because of the style of play? I think what you really get with regards to these NCAA tournament games as well is that you get a public that they just love to be able to bet over. It's because you get a lot of folks that they don't wind up betting college basketball throughout the season. They're not watching 
He's like December Slobberknockers of what you've got Gonzaga and Tarleton State, for instance. They take a look and they see, oh, this team is averaging like 82 points per game. They don't take into account how teams wind up looking at a little bit more recent form. They just see the true home games. They don't necessarily look at the neutral court games in which it is a little bit more difficult to be able to have consistent scoring. So I think that that's a big part of it. As a result, when it comes to the NCAA tournament, starting from the Sweet 16, we've had one first half over. We've had one full game over. We've had 11 unders in both of them. So if you've been betting unders in the last two rounds of the NCAA tournament on totals, whether it be first half or the full game, you are 11 and one. That is going to put you up. If you want to betting hundred dollars on every one of them, $990. So I think that that is something that you really want to be taking a look at. And is the tempo a little bit slower? Yes, you are going to find that in the NCAA tournament, but it's also the public as well. Just banking on over saying, Oh, we've had five unders in a row. We're, and I air quotes here, do for one and you never <laughs> want to be due for one. So I do think that it's a little bit of a few things that are melded together and that just creates for an avalanche of unders. Greg, do you have, we had a question from a, a friend of the show here, Tim Fraley um, wanted to ask you, you know, the spreadsheet again, we've talked about the spreadsheet. It's fantastic. And I, I always laugh when people at night make comments to you and it's like guys doing it. You're not paying for it. Like you're getting great information, but he just wanted to know, and you might've answered this before on our show, but all the games, when you have a big slate and do you play the sides, the totals, do you play it all? We go with everything. Now the bet timing is sometimes going to vary a little bit because there are some games in which you wind up seeing a massive differential and I like to take more openers than I do closing lines because oftentimes the best number you're going to get is the opener. Like look no further than Villanova versus Kansas. Kansas opened up a three and a half point favorite. You could wind up seeing a couple fours pop up and we have seen a couple fours with Kansas be able to come back up, but you sort of figured that the best number you were going to get on Kansas is the first one. But I do wind up playing it all because there is an edge to be had on a lot of these bigger games, but there's a good edge to be had on a lot of these smaller games as well. It doesn't matter if you're betting the final. Final four. It doesn't matter if you're betting on one of the worst beats of the year that I wound up taking that stupid Houston Baptist versus McNeese State game, which in triple overtime, you wind up <laughs> having the kid run out from the bench after it looks like a game winner is knocked through, but there was a second left and game goes to a fourth overtime. So that was one that I was very salty about, but I do wind up playing it all because I do see a relatively similar hit rate when it comes to sides and totals and as well as that these big games and these small games, just as long as you know what you're doing with regards to just bet timing. And if you don't see what you like early, just wait for the number to come to you because we're always going to see line moves on these games. Greg, to that point, uh, and then I'll finish up with these guys. Um, when you do bet everything, are there, do you strictly have the same bankroll or are there are games where you, you might put a little bit more on than a little than the others, or are you strictly a systematic approach? Like I believe you said it's 3% of your bank for every game, or do you have that one? Maybe you're going to put 5% because you just feel that confident in it. I keep it the same throughout just because I do see pretty much the same hit rate on darn near everything. And it's three one thousandths of my bankroll. So 0.3% and 1.1 units on the minus 110 spread. If it's, 
a case in which you wind up getting a very short money line at like a minus 105, then 1.05 units to be able to win one. But then with regards to the money line underdogs, which that's just simply a case in which I think the wrong team is favored. Team is getting two points. I make them a two-point favorite. I just wind up taking the money line, like say that it's plus 115. I just wind up laying the one unit to try to get the plus 115. Greg, we know you have to bounce, but we're going to force you to it. And you got bigger and better things to go to VEASAN on. But we need your winners here for the final four. Well, I want to send in Kansas as a four and a half point favorite. It's a case in which I want to betting this one early at three and a half. I would say that if you're looking at Kansas, try to find a four. We've seen a couple go out there, like as we're doing this right now. The only place in Vegas I'm seeing it at is Caesars. So I would say shop around on this one. And if you're not seeing the numbers that you like, don't freak out because this is much like the NFL approach. These numbers are going to be moving throughout the week. So don't feel like after you listen to this, you have to get in a bet within the next five minutes. Take your time. You can be able to shop the line very efficiently. I mentioned it before. I'm on both unders. And with the Duke versus North Carolina game, I set this line at four. We saw four and a half earlier in the week in on North Carolina. And I do think that as we get a little bit closer to tip, we are probably going to see a four and a half wind up getting there once again with North Carolina, just because of the Coach K narrative. So going to be looking at taking four plus here with North Carolina and with Kansas. Want to lay up to a four and a half with them, though. I would say try to get a four if at all possible. All right, Craig. As always, thanks for the time. And uh, we look forward to seeing how we do. Absolutely. You gentlemen have a good one. Thank you. Thanks, thanks Craig. Thanks. Have a good night. You too. Thank you. All right. As always, good information. Greg Peterson. You can follow him on VSIN and Twitter. I believe he's G underscore unit. I'll double check G that. G unit underscore 81. G unit underscore 81. Sorry about that, Greg. <laughs> uh, as always, solid information. I, I, I am going to go against him on the uh, the UNC. I, well, I figured we'll jump right into it. I just think, you know, with, with the home loss at Cameron, you know, was, was a pretty salty taste for Duke. I, I do think that, you know, UNC's luck maybe runs out. I'm going to buy into the uh, – the going away party for coach K, but I really thought it started at Cameron. And I think the players are going to be playing pissed off. Um, and, and I think you just, you go to the best player on the court and it's Paolo Bancaro. And, and I don't know, I just have this feeling that, you know, it's, it's just not their time to lose. I mean, they could lose to Kansas in the championship, but I think they get past UNC in a rivalry game and, and he kind of gets that last redemption against the Tar Heels. I'll shoot out my plays real quick. I already hit I'm glad he said it. Uh, I bet Kansas as soon as the line came out. I took Kansas minus three and a half, and I got the under, I believe, at 135. So I've already gained two points that direction. So I'm happy there. I haven't touched the UNC Duke game yet. I actually uh, do love his take on the under, which I'll probably hit. But I, too, Q, and probably am on Duke and the narrative. I also think the revenge is a huge factor. I think Duke does get their revenge. I actually think Williams is the best player on the court right now over uh, Paolo. He's just playing phenomenal. And if Greg's take is pound the ball inside and all the glass work, we should have a great game inside with Williams and Baycott down on eighth. If you guys like the big game, uh, big guy game, which I'm a fan of, I'm not a fan of the three point chuckers, even though that's what the game has kind of shifted to. So that's my early leans here, boys. Nails, I wanted to bring this up because you, you kind of mentioned, you know, you, you're going with me on the storyline. So Jason and I 
have talked about it, you know, kind of at length off the uh, off the air. And I think it's it's a good point. So we always talk like Ken Palm, you know, how do you how do you translate Ken Palm to a team? And I think Providence was the example. You know, they they go ahead and win the Big East tourney or the Big East regular season. You know, they were riding momentum. They get smoked in the uh, Big East tourney and then they kind of ride that you know, pissed off momentum and they, and they kind of handle business up until uh, Kansas, you know, gets them and they still cover. So they obviously didn't get blown out. Um, but, you know, you, with this Duke line, like how do you take your Ken Palm, which, you know, I don't have it with me. I don't know how it stacks up, but let's just say that they're an underdog role, like, but they're flying with this momentum. How do you kind of add in that, that human factor, you know, into the Ken Palm lines, because I do think it's significant, you know, whether it's a storyline, you know, coaches farewell or teams riding hot, you know, something like that. Like, how do you, or St. Peter's, I mean, how do you factor that in, in your opinion? Jay Ken, why don't you fire around that? You're the big numbers guy. Or Jason. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, I think there's a couple ways to do it. Um, Bart Torvik has a site that is very similar to Ken Palm. It's free, which is nice. And um, one thing that he does that's interesting is that you can change the time frames that you look at. And I think one of the things with Ken Palm, especially this time of year, um, you know, he'll cite that he needs more samples to be accurate. But, you know, teams change so much during the course of a season. Um, and I think you have a great example there with Duke and North Carolina, two teams that, you know, completely were different um, pre-Christmas to after Christmas, especially North Carolina, who's really come on um, later in the season. So I think you just use it as a baseline. You kind of look and see where Ken Palm is in relation to the spread. And then you kind of know, you know, we've heard that from Greg. We've heard it from a couple of different sources that the books kind of start there. And then I think that you take those intangibles and you kind of weigh that in. And, you know, especially with the tournament, you know, you can do a little more of an eye test than you probably can during a regular season. Obviously, you can't watch when there's uh, 150 games on a given night, right? But we're all watching the same games at the same time, especially here the last two weeks where it's one game at a time. So we're everyone's watching and you kind of can see what the input is here. I mean, you've seen with Duke where, you know, I know Greg gave Coach K a lot of credit. I don't think he's doing all that much coaching personally. I think he's got really talented guys, and he's kind of staying out of their way because they don't really play like most Duke teams do. I mean, they're 44th in defensive efficiency. They're usually top 20 when he's this good. Um, you know, they don't particularly turn the ball over a lot. They don't rebound defensively very well. Um, you know, their defense is really – they don't foul – and they guard the room really well, which will be a factor here because that's going to probably neutralize Baycott some. But that's, I mean, I think the Ken Palm stuff kind of gives you like a normalization where you kind of start from. And then you just kind of make, that's really where you handicap from um, is how close is this line to what he thinks, where, where the numbers check out. And is there an advantage because everyone's going to be betting off that number. So like a team like Providence, you can get an advantage because they probably play a little bit better than their efficiencies. But there's some other teams that play way beyond like Illinois is a great example of a team. Ken Palm loved Illinois, and when you watch them play, you're like, where is this team? Because you never see it, and maybe it was Curbelo, maybe it was a couple other factors, but they never played up to that efficiency. Purdue, you could also cite too. Um, great metrics, but when you watch them play, every game where they got a good lead, they let somebody back in, and you could kind of see the writing was on the wall that they were going to struggle come the tournament. So, to my my uh, my answer, that was to – follow up on your question though so there's all kinds of different betters we got the numbers guys we have the guys who watch the film we got the public betters we got the guys who love the over-unders we got the teaser king <laughs> i love i love the stats but i don't base all my lines on the stats it's, it's more of a guideline for me i love greg's sheet and i love ken palm 
And if you ever have a question on Ken Palm or any numbers, anybody, just reach out to Kaminsky. He's such a guru at it. But I love to watch the game. And you got to get who's hot. You got to get a coach. That's why I asked Greg about the coaching. I still am not sold on Hubert Davis. As good as he's made them be, if you just go watch the second half of that Baylor game, they couldn't even inbound a ball. I mean, you blow a 25-point lead. I get it. it, Stuff happens. But, man, that was bad. They'd even take a timeout, draw up a play, and still come back. Still can't even inbound the ball. I just can't trust him. I think he actually hurts them the most. And I hate to say it, too. Bill Self, to me, is not a good X's and O's coach. Although this team seems to not have his high class of athletes that he's always had. And I think he's molded it really well, though. And I'm waiting for uh, Abaji to actually go off, and I'm hoping it's in the Final Four because I have a futures ticket, and I'd love to have a final game of Duke, Kansas, and I can just coast through all this. You know, it's funny. That was the one question I wanted to ask Greg was, are people betting Kansas based on that second half that we all saw on Sunday or the seven halves they played before that where you were like, is this Kansas? (laughs) They look really mediocre up until that point. That first half of Miami – you know, I was on Kansas and I thought that was the worst bet I'd made in like two weeks. And then all of a sudden, like, you know, once they turned it on, they really turned it on. And like you said, I don't think this is as good of a Kansas team as we've seen talent wise. They're efficient. They have scores like they have everyone who can do something, but um, they just don't have any elite guys. I don't know if there's an NBA guy on that team um, when you look at it. I think you could see – I think Justin Morris uh, or Jason Moore, his injury is kind of playing into it too. I mean, is your second best player, you know, behind Gillespie. Obviously, you bring up a good point with the, you know, Kansas up until the second half of the Miami game when it's kind of like that's the team we've kind of been waiting to see, you know, all tournament long. But then, you know, when you see Villanova's uh, second best player, a huge integral part of the offense and defense blows Achilles, I think everybody was kind of like, okay, let's see what the line is. You know, it's not egregious at four. Let's just hammer Kansas. You know, that, that, that one guy right there is probably worth more than four points, in my opinion. Yeah, you know, diving into these, like looking over the Kansas stuff, um, really, you know, well, the last game for sure. I mean, they outscored Miami 47 to 15. They've been scoring in the mid 40s um, in most of these games in the second half. So they've come back out of the locker room and have kind of changed it up and turned it up a little bit here. You know, I think, you know, it's, I agree, man, Wright is just such a great coach. And I just would not be shocked if they don't, because everybody now, what did you think? Okay, second best player, Justin Moore goes out. Oh, this is not going to be close. I mean, in a teaser spot, why wouldn't you take Villanova up? I mean, they're just, you know, they'll they'll play another guy or two. I mean, they're not deep. They were only playing about six guys to begin with coming into this. But, man, they're so proficient on the offensive. Their cuts, how they pass, they shoot. You know, they're knocking down some three-pointers. Then, then we're in this. I think it's going to be a snail pace game. I think they'll go really slow. And like Greg said, and like, you know, we've been talking through text, Matt, we love the unders in this. I mean, big stadium that, in a, and it's the final four there. I, I don't care if you've been there or not. There's nerves that go into this, especially keep an eye on this first half unders. I mean, they're crushing. I mean, they crushed again last night in the NIT. The Xavier game went under. Texas A&M game went under. Uh, I've been playing those and been winning those. But, you know, I just think everybody is on Kansas because of that injury. And wouldn't it be shocking if they hang around Villanova and keep in this? Now, my thought on the Duke really quick, you know, like Greg said, 
Baycock got in foul trouble. In that first meeting, Duke shot 47% from three. They out-rebounded a 40 to 24. Well, of course, when your big guy's in foul trouble, that's going to happen. Now, the thing, too, with this, I think with Duke, now I have a ticket on Duke to win the national championship. So I'm like with Matt, I hope they can get in. I wish I would have jumped on Kansas myself. Duke, looking over the last three games, they're, they have Michigan State, five guys in double digits. Texas Tech, five guys in double digits. Arkansas, four guys in double digits. Really spreading the ball around. They're playing really well. I think it's a tough – I love the under two. I, I really do. I mean, again, especially in a teaser spot, take both those games, tease them up, and take the under in both of them. I like that. I'm not sure what I'm going to do yet in it. I mean, again, I'd love to cash that ticket with Duke. I've said it from the tournament. I just think they're going to get some calls to get him. I mean, it's great ratings. Everybody likes TV ratings. And it, the only other thing about going, not trying to jump back to the Nova Kansas game, Kansas better shoot free throws a little bit better than they have. That last game was brutal. They shot 50%. They were, at, I think in the first half, I think it was like 30 something percent. They were shooting Villanova can shoot free throws. You get, so if it's coming down close, who's going to shoot the better free throws, I think could be the key in that game. So let's look at something with Kansas' schedule this year, which because you're regarding a Villanova slowing this down. And uh, the projection from Ken Palm is 65 possessions, which is one of the lower ones Kansas has played all year. Um, I actually think it's going to go under that. If you look at the games where Kansas played in the low 60s possessions-wise, they are actually they're, they're three and one, but they've won by a combined one point, three points, two points, and then they lost by 10 to TCU. So they want to play fast. They need to play fast. They do not want to play in this grind game at Villanova. Now, it, I agree with the Q. I think just, Justin Moore is a huge injury because they just don't have any dynamic offensive players on Villanova. They just grind you to death, and that's really the issue. They, there's no one coming off that bench that's going to fill up that offensive void unless uh, Gillespie just goes nuts um, hitting threes. Um, everybody up front's a grinder. They're going to be playing against guys that are a little bit bigger than them. So, but the tempo is definitely going to favor Villanova, and it looks like it's something that actually bothers Kansas. I think with Villanova, you're kind of seeing what you know what UVA does is they they almost get themselves in trouble because they play such good defense. They limit you know how much they they have the ball and how many you know opportunities they have on the offensive side. Um, and then if you get down like. You can't just pick it up and just start running a, a you know, a running gun. You're not, you've worked all year on this slow pace. And then when you're down, you just don't have the possessions to catch up because not only do you have to keep getting the stops, but then you have to score on your limited possessions. And I think at the end of the day, you know, with, with losing more now, you know, they're going to be doubling Gillespie, especially late in the clock because he's their best shooter on the team. Um, I just don't see them being able to, you know, unless like Smitty said, Kansas just isn't hitting free throws, you know, and it's allowing Villanova back, back in the game. I just don't see that they're going to have the opportunities um, late in the game to, to kind of overcome Kansas's shooting. The one good thing I'm going to say is Matt made fun of me a couple of weeks ago when we did the show, I'm tied with my oldest daughter right now in the bracket. <laughs> and, and, and she can't beat me because I have Kansas into the finals. So that's the good news. So Kansas wins. She's already, I'd rather just tie because I don't want to hear your mouth, dad, saying that you beat me. Now I'm going to say another, I'm going to make fun of myself. I do a player draft a couple years ago before all this COVID I won it. And I've won it a couple of years. I've done really well. I mean, last, I haven't even looked 
the guy writes a nice little write up every time in every email he's been making fun of me because I'm dead last. I had one of the worst player drafts, I think, of all time. I could not believe how many guys were just getting eliminated nonstop. But it's so funny. This it's so hard to do this because think about all the shows. I was laughing on Sunday a little bit. <laughs> all the shows we've done, we bragged up the Mountain West all year. We did. I mean, I know I did. I think Jason's kind of, I think, on board. I'm going to throw Jason under the bus, too, with me. I'm going to go down. I know Matt, I think, was, too. I Q, you probably, I think, I think all four of us, they were brutal. And then we made fun of how bad the ACC was all year. And if Miami would have won that game, three out of four would have been ACC. Good luck picking this. Good luck. Hey, before we jump uh, either to finish the show or if Matt and Smitty, you want to talk golf, so we've had since the tournament um, has had these teams leave. So you've got Golden from San Francisco that goes to Florida. You've got Shaheen Holloway, who just recently signed today with Seton Hall. And then, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, McMahon from Murray State, he went somewhere too, correct? Yes, he did. LSU. 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 Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Which one of them is going to have the most – success i guess i mean it just seemed i mean obviously those are the three up and coming or alleged three up and coming like are any of them even going to do well uh or who has the the best jobs to be successful i'll go quick i think it's going to be cliche but i think it's going to be shaheen because he's going to go right in his backyard and he's he's going to ride a wave right now all the jersey kids all the new york kids are going to be like oh man we got this young coach who played knows what it is to play and, and is on our side. He likes, he likes a good tempo, but he wants you to play defense he, and he's super calm and collected, which I was impressed by. I think out of the gate, he's going to be hot and he goes into a, a great conference, not a, not the super power conference, but I think he's got the most potential. The other guys are going to go into meat grinders, I think, and they're going to get a little dose of reality, but I think Shaheen's the, the, the good pick out of the gate. Yeah, I think that's a great point because she she always been talking to those high schools all along, right? That Seton Hall has to recruit to. He just couldn't talk, he couldn't convince the best kid on that team to come to his school. He had to go talk to the third or fourth kid to come to his school. Now he can go move down the bench a little bit and be like, hey, you know, hey, Seton Hall, Big East, you know, tradition, everything like that. McMahon has a chance at LSU because when you're at LSU, you have access to kids from everywhere and you can recruit. LSU's had no problem with recruiting. They just have problems not paying people. Um, get other trouble that they've been getting into. <laughs> and I know they, Jason, they got the one. So Murray State is just, they've lost everybody. Everyone's gone. I don't even know if they have anybody on that roster right now. I know, and I know the one kid, I can't remember, and I saw it today, he did transfer to LSU with him. Yeah, he's they lost because they had three major players, but I mean, more guys. Somebody, I mean, one, of, I can't remember who it was, if it was Brian or somebody wrote today and said, like, that whole team is they're gone. Like they have to start from scratch. So you're, you're saying UI has more players on their roster than another team. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Barely. <laughs> I, I don't know. Hey, they, I think they might, they might, they should scrimmage. They should do a quick scrimmage. I, I'm more interested to see what Willard does in Maryland. Cause man, that seems like a job that you just can't win at right now. Like they're, they're alumni and their fan base has some expectations that really hold. They're like the Nebraska, when Nebraska is the football where they're expecting someone to come in and be Gary Williams from get go. And it's like, okay, let's, you know, big 10 is really tough. In fact, you know, as a Penn State basketball fan, I like our coach right now. He's, he's got a top 25 recruiting class come in. 
And I'm looking next year and thinking, we still have no chance of making the tournament because we've got to leapfrog 10 teams to get there. And Maryland's kind of down where Penn State is right now. It's like, that's like impossible to get through. Now, I know they all stink once they get to the tournament, but man, that those teams are still pretty good. And it's a meat grinder to go on the road. It's a long, long road trips and good home courts in that league. And like I said, it's just like the expectations on him. They're not real enthused with the hire. So he's already on a bad foot. And I just think that thing's going to explode quickly. Yeah, and I they said, want Patino. They want big beeline would actually be a great fit there. And I said that to Jason. I think that guy, because again, I'm a, you know, I'm a Georgetown fan. I'm a big East guy. I watch a lot of big East basketball. I think he's a good coach. I was really shocked. I agree with you. Reading some of the stuff on Twitter, just some of the like not happy with that hire. Well, can can I ask? Yeah, exactly. Who are you going to go get? Who did you want? Mark Turgeon's a good coach. He's going to end up somewhere, and he's going to be back in the tournament maybe before Maryland gets there. Like, yeah. you know, he's going to where he's going. I 100% agree with you, man. And I think the fan, they need to realize Gary Williams is not walking through. I mean, again, <laughs> did, 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 did people want Juan door. Dixon? Didn't want people want Juan Dixon? Can, can I can I give a quick can I give a quick thing about that? Hey, Maryland fans, you might not want to go get a former player. I'm just saying. Just <laughs> saying, Maryland fans, it's hard to get. You know, there was a guy that I played at a school, and he was really good, and the school was really winning. They won a championship, and I think he went into the NBA. I think he then into some nice, nice uh, strip clubs down in Atlanta, Georgia. No, I'm just joking. Uh, but you can't get out of that contract. That's the problem. Now, yeah. we'll see what happens again. But I wish they would have went in a different direction. We'll see. I will say this about Georgetown. Supposedly, they got a coach from LSU, and a lot of the players are leaving LSU. And there's some rumors that maybe they're coming to Georgetown. So maybe we can get some talent finally. It probably won't turn around very good. Again, just rebound, everybody. Rebound the basketball. I'm impressed that we both got Penn State and Georgetown into that conversation. So, hey, we, we always sneak it in, man. You got to know. You got to slither into it. I'll start. I'll start. Somehow start talking about Pirate Baseball. Sure about the new coaches. Who's going to do well? <laughs> All right, too, boys. Want some golf or are you kind of waiting for Masters talk? What's – Smitty nails what you got. We can fire off a quick uh, Valero open a couple picks we have and a little bit of insight. Uh, precursor to the Masters, of course, we got the Valero open down in San Antonio. I believe the course is seventy four hundred yards long. Course doesn't play long. They're expecting the scores to be in the twenty five under to twenty under range, so it's going to be some healthy scoring down there. Should be um, dry for some long runs on the drives and then the rough isn't built up yet. Just like we saw last week. I'll give out my lineup real quick. A little DFS. I have Jonathan Vegas, Maverick McNeely, Abraham answer, Chris Kirk, who plays this course traditionally well, young start uh, Davis Riley, who's I believe over the last eight weeks has been eighth in strokes gained. So he's a long shot play Martin Laird. And then Austin Smotherman who here two years ago, I believe on the corn Ferry tour played really, really well. So he's another long shot. You might want to take a look at, I haven't bet any winners yet. I'm probably going to look at McNeely, but I did bet Jonathan Vegas round one leader at a, at a really good number. Yeah, Matt, very well said. A lot of guys I'm right with you here. I've taken the last two weeks off. I'm diving in. 
uh, ready to get back into it. You know, it is a wide open course, large greens. Now, wind can be a factor down there if it does get windy. So keep an eye on that. You know, Rory's coming into this. Um, you know, you got a couple big names in this tournament. Rory, you know, has not played this since 2013, but he did when he played it. He was in second place in this. So, you know, you're looking at it like Matt said, it's a week before the Masters. I mean, that's that's the big one. Are some of these big guys, is this, you know, are they going to really try to compete or is this just going to be one of these that it's a tune up a little bit for next week? We'll have to see. Keep an eye on that. But I kind of agree with uh, Matt with some guys. I'm going to give mine out tonight like I always do. I'll tweet it out. You know, Corey Connors, I'm high on in this tournament. Uh, Kirk, um, you know, he's done well here. I think he was a, a six, an eighth, an eighth, a 13th and a 48th over his time playing this course. Uh, I like Gary Woodland too, a little healthier now. Um, seems like he's playing really well. The health was an issue. Now he's pretty consistent. I agree with Matt. I like uh, Vegas a little bit here. Uh, looking at just some of the stats from um, from Vison that they gave out, uh, Luke List again is in a lot of the categories. So I'm going to kind of keep an eye on Luke List, and I might I I kind of do that when it's when they're matching up in a lot of the the categories. I always take a chance. I like Luke. I've played him a couple times this year, so that's another one. I'm going to look at the numbers after the show, and then I will uh, tweet out uh, some information. Hugh, one last piece, uh, or, or sorry, Jake, I didn't mean to jump in front of you. Three guys to keep an eye on real quick. Three vets. If you like a grinders here, I believe all three have to finish in X spot to qualify for the Masters. It's Matt Kuchar, Ricky Fowler, and Jason Day. So if you want to play it safer and get some, some known studs, but guys are going to have to grind it out, these guys got to win or play well to get in uh, to the Masters. So it might be three to look at. That's crazy. Ricky Fowler and Jason Day. I'll make, I think Ricky Fowler's a couple of years now not making the Masters, but yeah. So yeah, no, I did a, a nice solid uh, twenty minutes of research on this. I found a very good article from Matt Vincenzi on action. I'll give him credit for that. Um, so yeah, Luke List that Smitty mentioned was a guy who really popped out. Seemed like he met really good on five criteria that this guy listed. And um, Corey Connors, who finished in the semifinals of the match play last week, seems like a guy, a guy who does pretty well here as well. So you got what do you think about those two? I know you like List Smitty, but Corey Connors. I love Corey Connors too. Yeah. Corey Connors probably going to make my card for sure. Nice. Yeah. I agree with you. I just, I'm going to stay off. I think Connors is playing so hot right now. I actually think he's looking bigger picture. Cause I think he's got a shot at the masters right now. Uh, I mean, is it, isn't, isn't there a curse on this Valero open too? If you've ever won this, you've never really done well at the masters. I don't know. Cause I think they've changed it. I thought you used to play Zurich. Wasn't the Houston open before. Yeah. It was it was a different tournament. They've kind of they, they, they flipped it. I know reading it's sometimes they they flipped it over some years uh, from the spring to the fall, come kind of back like that. Yeah, yeah no, that should, be, that should be exciting. I mean, it. I'm glad to you know last week I didn't play any, but the match play was really neat how they did that and everything. But no, I'm excited. And then next week let's dive into it, man. We got our we got our draft starting Friday, so. Um, We'll see what happens there with the uh, our, we do the big four majors. So good luck to the boys that play in that draft. We should, we should set odds on the draft. Like who's going to be the best out of that that thirteen people that are in that? <laughs> I'm going I'm to put myself for fourth, which is right out of the money. That's that's I'm really good at finishing right there, and and it'll be. Like I'll, I'll make a rally. I'll either be way ahead and fall off, or I'll make a rally just to finish fourth, like perfectly. Yeah. So. I love it. I love it. All right, boys. That's all I got for this show. 
Sweet, I just yeah. want to, I want to give a quick shout out. You know, we went out, it was great to see Matt um, out in Vegas. Again, the VEASAN guys were fantastic. Tim Murray, Sean King, Matt humans. We met, um, you know, uh, some other people that we met out there. Thank you so much for the time. Also just want to give a shout out Benny Messiah. What a great host, Fred, Shane, Jared, uh, Ben, good seeing everybody out there. Really had a good time with those guys and go. What's our, what's our new team cue? Gold miners, gold miners, go gold miners, Colorado sponsored by dots pretzels, the best pretzels in North Dakota. And what Tillamook the hell just happened? <laughs> Tillamook beef jerky, best jerky on the field. Dots pretzels, get them. And it's bobblehead night on Tuesday. Go gold miners. That's all I got for you guys. I feel like that was all code. <laughs> that was not code. That was the pick for the new color commentators. We're starting our job right. Gold miners up three, two in a second. <laughs> uh, boys, that's all I got. If you guys don't have anything, we'll be back next week. Best of luck, everybody. Me and Nails always say, bang your bookies. Yeah, let's get it. Thanks for listening to the Notebook Wagering Podcast. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. And be sure to follow at Notebook Wagering. Until next time.